0: Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites Basics, the pediatric podcast aimed at healthcare students or anyone in need of a refresher of common pediatric conditions. I'm Asim, one of the founders of Dragon Bites and a pediatric trainee here in Wales. I just wanted to welcome you back after the festive holidays and hope you all managed to have a bit of a good time before coming back to the new year. Our Dragon bites Basics episodes are hosted by local medical students who discuss topics with trainee pediatricians from Wales. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind everyone that this is an introductory podcast and not meant to replace your regular revision. Bear in mind that practice will change depending on your locality and as new evidence comes to light. This week, we're going to be discussing abdominal masses. One of our previous medical students at Cardiff University, but now someone who's a fully qualified doctor, Dr. Georgia Parry, was our host for this episode, and she discussed this topic with Dr. Blanche Lum, a paediatric trainee in Wales. Anyway, let's get started.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Dragon Bites Basics podcast with me, Georgia Parry, a medical student at Cardiff University. And I'm very lucky to be joined by Dr. Blanche Lum, who is a paediatric registrar with an interest in oncology. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Lum, and welcome. Hi. Hi, Georgia. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about abdominal masses in children and two of the most common types of malignancy which can cause abdominal mass um a Wilms tumour and neuroblastoma so I think obviously abdominal masses is there's so many different causes in children and when a child presents to either primary care or or secondary care with an abdominal mass what what would you what would be your approach Dr Lum to examining that child and, and thinking about what the differential diagnoses are
2: Yeah, so um, the most common abdominal mass I would say we see in children is definitely poo because children get constipated. So it's not unusual to find a mass, but it is important to be confident in what you think that mass is, I guess, because it could be a malignancy. Um, so yeah, so classic back to your medical school stuff, take a good history, take a detailed history and, and not just about the mass itself and whether they're on and off their food bowel, habit, that kind of thing, but also about them generally, how they've been, have they lost any weight, that kind of thing. And then with your examination, I guess you're looking for where the mass is. Um, yeah. so classically like, uh, left or right, even a little fossil might be more likely to be poo. Um. Kidney stuff you tend to hear feel through the more at the flanks around the back, but you can feel from the front if they're particularly big. um, You know, right in that fossa, you can get appendix masses or um, abscesses. So, you know, just thinking about your anatomy related to where it is. Right up the quadrant, you obviously got your liver, so like things like hepatoblastoma. So, yeah, so you want to know where it is, what it feels like. So, does it feel that classic cancer description of hard, craggy? non-mobile, kind of fixed, does it feel um, probably not softer, but more mobile, that kind of thing. Um, And then look at the child generally, do they look well or unwell? Kids with neuroblastoma can look quite sick. Um, So you just want to have a look at them generally. And and in paediatrics, we tend to examine all the systems in one go. So we'll do check their heart and lungs as well. So just a general kind of check them over at the same time
1: okay thank you so in this podcast then we, we can talk a bit more about two of the more sinister causes which obviously are a lot more rare but um these are things that we don't want to miss so I don't know whether other medical students can relate but I feel like I know a little bit more about the Wilms tumour so should we start with that one if that's all right
2: yeah you know tell me everything you know about Wilms
1: <laughs> I was going to ask you if you could tell me about what Wilms tumour is <laughs>
2: Yeah, of course I can. Um, so Wilms is like is a kidney tumour. So it's a type of kidney cancer, um, and it's no, it makes up ninety percent of childhood kidney cancers. And renal cancers in children are about five percent of all tumours. So that's about eighty cases a year, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's thought to be from immature cells in the embryo, which normally disappear. But in in Wilms, you can get clusters of primitive kidney cell- cells um that are still there and they've grown and that's how they've kind of got a mass the main thing I guess to know with Wilms for exams would be that there's genetic conditions associated with them do you know the main one I'm going to put you on the spot
1: oh so the actual name is it Beck- Beckwith Wiedelman or how do you how do yeah. you pronounce it
2: Beckwith Wiedelman that's, okay. that's how I say it I don't know.
1: <laughs>
2: that's how I say it. that's the you know the classic one um so there are others. So NF1, from you can never say that. It's like a um, tumor-associated condition. Uh, things like Fanconi and all the rarer things like Bloom syndrome, Sotos syndrome. They're all associated can be associated with it. And then there's another kind of subgroup where you have a change in one of your genes called the WT1 gene, and you can get WT1-related Wilms tumor syndromes, and those specifically or the two that tend to come up the most are Dennis Drass syndrome. So they have a more than 90% chance of getting a Wilms tumour. Um, and for those of you who like to know the genetics, it's a missense mutation in WT1 exon 8 or 9, I think. Right. And then Wagger syndrome, so WAGR, which is, I think they've got a 50% risk. And that's a deletion in the WT1 gene. So they're kind of the classic exam child with... Dennis Strauss has an abdominal mass, <laughs> what's it most likely to be?
1: And does that happen in clinical practice as well, or is that very much something that we should know in for exams? How like how common is it really? Um so they get um if they have a
2: high risk syndrome, they'll get screening. So they'll have three monthly, I think Dennis Drass has three monthly ultrasound scans. Oh, looking because they're so likely to get it that we look for it and try and catch it early. So yeah, the rarer tumours, uh, the rarer syndrome, sorry, you just might see less. But like Beckwith-Wiedemann, I'm definitely seeing a child with that who's got a Wilms
1: tumour. Okay, thank you. I'm glad that you explained all of that much better than I ever could have attempted to. <laughs> and so what age do these children usually present? Um,
2: they tend to be under seven. Um, rarely they can be older than that. But generally, Wilms tend to be about seven and below.
1: Okay. And are there any other clinical features of a Wilms tumour other than the abdominal mass?
2: um yeah so classic kidney you can get hematuria, so pain tend to be painless hematuria, and um hypertension so anything that affects your kidney kidney has a role in controlling your blood pressure they tend they can have high blood pressure and then you can get kind of the more vague symptoms so the fevers um which is sometimes due to if the tumor is growing really big and starts to become necrotic they might get cyclic fevers um or they might just be unwell because their body's trying to um, is growing this big thing and then weight loss because of the high turnover anorexia if it's really big and it's filling up their tummy they might not be hungry and then constipation if they've got a big mass that's in the way and pressing on
1: things okay so if if a child does present with pain as more of a presenting feature than the mass would that lead you to think of another diagnosis or is that still something that you should be thinking about
2: that's because you can get pain when if you bleed into a tumor Okay. Or if the blood supply to the tumor and it's outgrown its blood supply and it starts to become necrotic, you would get pain. So I wouldn't. If you had a child with an abdominal mass who had pain, you're probably going to scan them anyway. Okay. So I, it probably wouldn't cloud your thinking that much.
1: I see. And if this child is seen in in primary care, so say in general practice, how quickly should they be referred to secondary care? Because I know in adults a lot a lot of the urgent suspected cancer referrals are two weeks Does, is that different for children i think in children they're more
2: likely to be sent straight in okay is my experience they tend to end up through cau if, you, if you're that worried they'll just send them straight in um <clears throat> i think the more subtle ones might end up in like general peds so like oh got a bit of constipation maybe fill a mass might be poo not getting better i'm over cold or we'll refer them to general peds they might end up that way but i think if you're there's there's definitely nice guidance on it which is probably the same. I don't know if to it's it's Probably a couple of weeks, but realistically, I think the way paediatrics in general practice work practically, um, we tend to take most referrals via CAU, and I think a lot of them come in through that way.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that kind of reflects what I've just seen on my GP placements. Um, and when the child does get to secondary care, what investigations would you proceed with, and and then how do you like actually confirm the diagnosis?
2: so they tend to start with ultrasound because it's painless and non-invasive and, and for younger kids the images aren't always great but it's still probably better than trying to do like a more invasive scan where they might need sedation so they generally all have an ultrasound to start with looking at whatever the mass might be um and then it can be followed up with mri and ones tumors can um, or tumours with the kidney there's something called a claw sign which you can just google to have a look at and basically it's where the tumour grown and the kidney is kind of around the tumour and it looks like a little claw um, I haven't seen that before Thank you. I wouldn't pretend to be able to spot it without it being shown to me by a radiologist that <laughs> is the classic sign um, and then so they'll have a biopsy to confirm what type of tumour is because there are other renal tumours and uh, they'll have full staging done which is an MRI abdomen and CT chest
1: Okay. And how do you normally manage these children?
2: Um, So generally, they'll have some chemotherapy to shrink the tumour first. Then they'll have a nephrectomy where they'll remove the tumour and the kidney. And then they'll have more chemotherapy, plus or minus radiotherapy, depending on the risk. Um, The treatment varies slightly with the histology, the staging and then the genetics. Some histology and genetics are higher risk. Um, So they'll have longer treatment. And it depends where it is. If it's only in one kidney and it's not spread, then it's pretty confident you'll get it out with surgery. So they might not have as much chemo. But if they're worried it's come out of the capsule or something like that, then they'll have it will still be removed with surgery, but they might have more chemo around it just to make sure all those cells are mopped up.
1: Okay. And I can imagine the prognosis probably varies depending on, as you've just mentioned, like how far advanced the tumour is. But in general, what is the kind of prognosis when you've. Um when there's been a Wilms tumour diagnosed? So about, I think it's about 85, 85 percent are cured. Obviously, if you've got
2: high-risk histology, or it's a, le- a higher stage, so it's spread to other parts, you've got metastases, then you're more likely
1: to relapse.
2: But yeah, I think the cure rate's 80-85%.
1: Oh, brilliant. That was really helpful. Thank you. Um, so as we've touched on before, there's a, another tumour which causes an abdominal mass, a neuroblastoma. Is that right? Yeah, so that's not a renal tumour, but it can present with an abdominal mass. Okay, are you able to tell me a little bit more about what that is and how it's different from a Wilms tumour?
2: Yeah, so it's um, it develops from cells left behind during kind of the embryonal development, specifically neuronal cells, so it can occur anywhere in the body, but at the site of origin, tends to be in one of the adrenal glands or in the nerve tissue along the spinal cord, so that's why you might have an abdominal mass if it's if it's come from an adrenal gland. But it can spread to tissues beyond the original site. So it can go into your bone marrow, it can go to your bones, your lymph nodes, liver. I think you can also get skin manifestation. So although the abdominal mass might be your initial finding, it might not be your only site or it might not be your initial finding if that makes sense.
1: Yeah okay and um, how do children usually present with this condition i know you've mentioned a little bit earlier about them looking more unwell than a wilms
2: yeah so they can look they just you've seen a few of them you get they get a look they just look unwell they look a bit sickly they often they're in quite a lot of pain because if it has spread to like bones and stuff they'll have bony pain um so they'll have like a if the tumours in the abdomen they have like a swollen tummy they might have constipation again they might have difficulty passing urine depending if it's pressing on anything if they've got masses in their chest from, like, the spine, sometimes they come out, like, the thoracic levels, and um, you might have, like, shortness of breath or difficulty swallowing. Sometimes you kind of get it in your lymph nodes, so you can have, like, lymphadenopathy like you'd get in leukaemia or lymphoma even. Um, so then they'll get, like, lumpy necks. Um, and then, obviously, if there is an area in the spinal canal which is pressing onto the spinal cord, then they can present with, like, cordial or weakness in their legs and stuff like that.
1: Okay. And again, just for examination question type purposes, what what are the investigations that you would do for um this type of tumour and how is it actually diagnosed?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot more tests for neuroblastoma just because it can be in any site. So generally abdominal mass you'd probably still have an ultrasound first, non invasive, always important. Yeah. Um you'll have blood tests they have bone marrow tests, like we talked about in the leukaemia podcast, looking for any cells in the bone marrow. Um, they can have um, MRI of the abdomen and CT of the chest, looking for metastases. If you've got a site so if you can see it in the neck, for example, you scan that as well. And sometimes I, one patient had a brain MRI as well, looking for metastases. And then often they have a special test called an MIBG scan
1: okay could you tell me a bit more about that I can
2: try so I will caveat it by saying I'm not a um, radiologist but (laughs) I'm sure you can find one who will tell you more about it basically you give them a I'm gonna say this wrong like an isotope called meta oh wow that's a mouthful (laughs) yeah that's why we call it MIBG And basically, it's shown that this substance is taken up by neuroblastoma scales. So it's given as um, an injection attached to like a radioactive iodine, um, which gets taken up by the cells. And then you get a scan that looks a bit like a PET scan. Have you seen them? Yeah, I've seen PET scans. Yeah. It looks a bit like that. And basically, areas that glow have taken up the MIBG. So they're areas where you think there's active neuroblastoma.
1: Okay, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. There's also a
2: treatment for another milk which involves using that radioiodine I'm not like called called MIBG but I'm not quite sure how that works but if anyone's really interested that you can probably read around it.
1: Okay, are there any other treatments for this type of malignancy?
2: Yeah, so they have they tend to have quite a lot of treatments so they depending on the stage the higher stage will kind of have all of this so chemotherapy mainstay different um, protocols but they'll have chemotherapy and there is a um important marker called mycn which um if they've got a lot of it it's known as sometimes it's called mycn i think like but it's spelled and amplification. And basically that's more aggressive type and higher risk. So they tend to have even more treatment. Um, so they'll have high dose chemotherapy with something called stem cell rescue. Um, they also can have surgery. So they've got lumps of the tumor, they'll take them out. But often we shrink it first for chemotherapy. They can have radiotherapy. So um, just trying to target specific areas. And then it's... a. Radioactive MIBG that they can also use to kill the cancer cells. But like I said, I'm not sure we even do that where I work. So I think they'd have to go to another centre. And then the other thing they can have is there's a um, high-risk neuroblastoma patients in the UK. There was a trial that they received some immunotherapy with a monoclonal antibody. It's an anti-GD2 antibody. And they have that after they've kind of finished off all of their other treatments, so their, their chemotherapy, their surgery, radiotherapy, stem cell, res- high dose chemotherapy and rescue, and then they'll have this at the end. Um, I think the trial was called Sipen. if anyone's very interested.
1: Oh, wow. That's complex stuff. Thank you for walking me through that. Um, and what is the prognosis for these kind of malignancies? And it, is it different from Wilms?
2: Um, it is different. So overall, I think it's about as similar, so it's about 80%, but that varies quite a lot with stages. So, um, low risk survival is over 90, 95%. Um, and I probably should mention there's like a special, um, stage of neuroblastoma, which is called, so it's stage one to four. Um, but there's a special stage called stage four S. Um, there, there is some new staging, but this is the staging I know. Um, and it's basically under one. And that one seems to respond really well to treatment and switches off. And they think it's probably just left over from that embryonal um, growth. And sometimes it switches off after one cycle or, or, quite, or even before they have any chemotherapy. Um, but yeah, that's just a special kind of subset if they're under one.
1: Okay, thank you. I definitely need to go away and revise my embryology after
2: this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm not doing the podcast on embryology. It's, ve- it's very complicated.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for inspiring me to actually go and re- learn some more embryology. Um. So, again, I've asked you this before, but if you could possibly summarise Wilms tumour and neuroblastoma, um, in a sentence or two for each, what would you say to us? Um.
2: I think I'll go back to my my favourite sentence, which is children's cancers are rare. And I think that's really important. And when you work in oncology a lot, like I do, you start to see it everywhere, but it is rare and you can be reassuring to parents that it is rare. Um, yeah. I think generally for abdominal masses, it's easy to ultrasound. I'm sure Rachel just will hate me for saying that, but if you're concerned, <laughs> it's fairly easy to get a non-invasive, no-radiation test to just have a look at. And and you know, ultrasound will show you where it's coming from and and... Any suspicious features, um, yeah, they're a bit more compli- a bit more difficult to f- summarize into <laughs> one. These two um, neuroblastoma, I would say, is just, uh, um, it's quite complicated. But if you just think of it as something that can present at more than one site, not just in the abdomen, um, and something that's kind of embryonal rather than a kidney tumor, that's probably important to remember for like exams and things like that
1: yeah okay thank you are there any other resources that you could point us to to have a a little look if we want to read some more
2: um so i'd always start i think i've said it before um the children's cancer and acuna group which is the uk kind of um working group and charity that do a lot of work and do all our guidelines and it's got loads of really easy to read resources so i'd probably start there um and then if you're interested it'll it even has links into the research and stuff so you can kind of go down the rabbit hole of oncology from there.
1: oh well thank you dr lum for taking us through all of that i've learned so much today um and thank you everyone for listening to this podcast tune in for more soon
0: And I just wanted to say thank you to both Georgia and to Blanche for recording that episode for us. Now that we're back into it, please join us again next week when we'll be going back to one of our main Dragon Bites episodes. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.